Hello everybody at Mafra. Uh, here we are again on video. Uh, we're going to return to a series on the book of Isaiah which we started uh, a few years ago. We got up to the end of chapter 39 and today we're going to continue that. Uh, before I do, just a little bit of uh, family news. Uh, thanks for those who've been praying for us. Um, we uh, certainly do appreciate that. Sal had a fairly painful operation this week uh, to re-implant one of her feeding tubes that keep her alive uh, and she's not home yet and she, it looks like she won't be home uh, maybe, hopefully tomorrow or today for you that is Sunday we'll see how it goes anyway uh, we would value your continuing prayers so thanks a lot uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll think about Isaiah uh, loving heavenly father we thank you for gathering us together thank you for gathering us around your word your word which is uh, eternal and true uh, we ask that you would uh, open our minds to receive your word by your Holy Spirit uh, for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Isaiah. Um, yeah, we started it a few years ago, and it's too good a book just to leave it. Chapter 39. Uh, but the book divides itself into three sections, not, not equal sections. But uh, chapters 1 to 39 are the first part. Uh, the context of chapters 1 to 39 is that Judah is under threat from Assyria. But then, and that was written against the backdrop of what was going on while Isaiah was alive. But chapters 40 to 66 uh, look ahead to the future, uh, look ahead to a future beyond Babylonian captivity. And so uh, the, the, uh, this section that we're looking at today, we're just doing it by way of recap to prepare for thinking about chapter 40 and onward, uh, which Nathan will be beginning next week. So just to remind ourselves of where we've been, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Turn up Isaiah chapter 1. Please have it open there. We're going to flick through a few different places. Um, but uh, Isaiah's prophecy begins this way. The vision of Isaiah, a vision is an oracle. It's a word received from God, uh, which has to be passed on. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah had a fairly lengthy career. Uh, the, the reigns of those kings encompassed the years 767 to 686 BC. And we know from the details within the book that Isaiah's prophetic career lasted around 59 years, which is a long time to be anything really, but he was a prophet for people that didn't want to hear. So that would have been demanding. Now, Isaiah was prophesying in the context of the world after the kingdom had been divided. So we know that Israel had King Saul and then King David, and then David was succeeded by his son Solomon. Solomon was succeeded by his son Rehoboam, but Rehoboam made bad decisions which annoyed the people who lived in the northern tribes. And so in 930 BC, you can read it in 1 Kings 12, the kingdom was divided. And from then on, uh, the northern kingdom was known as Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, uh, after one of the major tribes, but often mostly called Israel. And the southern tribe became known as Judah uh, because it was the dominant tribe and the tribe from which Israel's kings came. And so Isaiah is prophesying in Jerusalem uh, at the time of you know, while the split was happening, or not after the split had happened, but but um, while Israel itself was being knocked out by the Assyrians. And so Isaiah chapter 1 is a key to understanding the whole book because there's an indictment 
of the people of Jerusalem who by and large are decadent. Uh, Chapter 1 verses 2 to 10 tell us that they're rebellious, they're foolish, they've become estranged from God, they've been vanquished, they've been defeated by enemies and they're desolate. Verses 11 to 14 tell us that um, they were good at religion, they were keeping on going with all the religion but their hearts weren't in it and so to God their sacrifices were unacceptable and as a result of that their prayers weren't heard. They were doing all the formal things of religion but uh, they weren't attending to what uh, worship of Yahweh really required. And so verses 16 to 17 there's a call to repentance, a call for them to change their mind, change their heart and change their way of living. And with that call to repentance, there's a promise of forgiveness. So verses 18 and 19 are well known. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So there's this image of complete transformation, a promise of genuine forgiveness. But then it goes on and it lays out, what will happen if they do and what will happen if they don't. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So there's a promise for obedience, but a warning for continued rebellion. Verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice the imagery there. Uh, Whatever whatever happens is going to be a feast. If if, If they obey God, if they turn, if they repent, then they will eat the good of the land. If they continue to refuse God, then they'll be eaten by the sword. Either way, there'll be a feast. But it's conditional. If you repent, but if you refuse. There's uh, prosperity and blessing if they repent. There's judgment and torment if they refuse. Well, Judah's essential problem can be seen at the beginning and the end of the first section of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah divides into big sections, but then within the smaller sections, there's units as well. And the first of those is from chapter 1 through to chapter 5. In chapter 1, verse 4, uh, we're told that Judah has forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. But those words are echoed, almost repeated, but just amplified and and, uh, modified a little bit. At chapter 5, verse 24, and this forms a bracket around the whole first section. This is how we're to understand all that falls between those verses. Judah has rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So to forsake Yahweh is to forsake his word. To forsake his word is to despise God. And these people were guilty of despising God. God's word is an expression of his character. Uh, It's not separate from him. It's an expression of who he is. To despise or forsake Yahweh's word is an insult to the creator God of the universe, the God who redeemed Judah to be his own people. Uh, And it's it's a, a, a sin from which they must urgently turn or else face just judgment. And so we saw previously when we looked at Isaiah a couple of years ago that really the story of Isaiah has an oscillating effect It oscillates between threat and judgment and then promise and salvation. So in the first 39 chapters, it's mainly about threat and judgment. They've been told you must change your ways, but there are promises of salvation for those that do change. But later on in the book, the emphasis swings more towards the promise and salvation end of the spectrum. But what are they under threat for? Why 
will Judah be subject to judgment? There's a range of things that you can see if you look through chapter one. They're guilty of injustice. They don't they don't see that um, that that people are treated justly. They're guilty of idolatry. They prefer the worship of the gods of the nations round about rather than the, the true worship of the one true God, Yahweh. They're greedy. They're living in times of economic prosperity and yet the wealth is not evenly distributed. Uh, there's poor people and the rich don't care about them. They express their wealth in, in decadent living and so drunkenness was a big problem. Drunkenness which is an abomination to God. And with it all they're arrogant. They don't know how foolish they are. They're, they're proud of who they are. They don't think they need God because they're getting along, well they think they're getting along pretty well but for all of that they're subject to God's judgment. But is there any chance of the promise of salvation coming to pass? Well, it absolutely depends on their repentance. So will they repent? That's the big question. Is judgment all that Judah can expect? Well, when you read chapter 2, which we're about to do, you'll find that there's a better future waiting. But again, it's conditional on repentance. So read chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go this law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We'll notice that uh, verse 1 is very similar to chapter 1, verse 1. It's almost like a new introduction to the book. Uh, but rather than being set in the days of the kings that were named in chapter 1, the content of chapter 2 is set in the latter days. Now, latter days means it's a Hebrew way of saying in the, the future, in the unknown future, but probably in the distant future. And so the chapter one was what's happening now. It's a description of the life that was being lived by Isaiah and, and the people of Judah. This chapter two is set in the future. And it's a future that sees the nations and the peoples coming to the house of Yahweh on Mount Zion, the temple, and, and joining in the worship of Yahweh, who has revealed himself to Israel at this time. And so the nations say, come on, let, let's go up there, let's, that we may walk in the, in the paths of Yahweh. In fact, what it means is that the nations will embrace the law that Judah is currently rejecting. That's an extraordinary turn of events. It's an amazing turnaround. So the question is, how will that beca become possible? Now, we find there that Yahweh will judge between the nations and his judgments are true and right. They're just. They're judgments that will bring peace to the earth, peace that will be expressed in, in swords being turned into agricultural implements. Uh, war will be a thing of the past. That's a glorious future that I think everybody longs for. Uh, the, the international embrace of Yahweh's law leads to universal peace. 
And that's the future that the whole Bible is working towards. It's one that you and I should earnestly set our hearts on. Uh, How will it be accomplished? Well, the New Testament makes it very plain. It will only be accomplished when the Lord Jesus returns. And it will only be accomplished in the lives of people that have come by faith to the Lord Jesus. But this is the vision that Isaiah sets out before us. And so he finishes with a plea to this decadent people who are forsaking the law of God. He says there's going to come a day when the nations embrace the law that you're rejecting. And so he pleads with them in verse 5, O house of Jacob, descendants of Jacob, whose name was Israel, um, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's live. Let's order our lives according to the law of, of God, the just lawgiver. Now that uh, reference to turning swords into plowshares is a fairly famous image of of world peace and it's worth just remarking on this for the moment because there's an irony that we see in this sculpture, uh, an irony which is being played out on our news screens every night uh, that shows us that one of the problems that Israel had was they kept forming alliances with other nations thinking that if they behaved in a politically savvy way that they could solve their problems that way and of course that doesn't work. We, we live in a political world. We have to engage with it. But don't ever look to politics or power to solve your real problems. The, the only solution to the, the true problems that face everyone and the, the grievances that, that uh, cause distress in, in, in lives right around the world, the only one who has the solution to that is God. And those things won't be solved by human means. But back in 1959, a gift was made to the United Nations. The United Nations... Uh, building in in New York has a sculpture garden and this one here let us beat swords into plowshares according to the United Nations website the sculpture symbolizes man's desire to put an end to war and convert the means of destruction into creative tools for the benefit of all mankind why is it ironic well it was the gift of the USSR the United Soviet Soviet Socialist Republic in 1959 at the height of the Cold War when America and Russia both as they were equipped with nuclear weapons that could destroy the whole planet, um, were uh, you know silently watching and waiting for the other to make the first false move. Well, here we are, the descendants of the USSR, Russia are in Ukraine, and how's this turning out? Uh, well, read the newspaper, watch the TV, and you'll, you'll see. People don't have what it takes to establish a future where swords will no longer be needed. Only God can do that. And so we find this oscillation of threat and promise, threat of judgment, promise of salvation. The threats are close at hand. The promises seem to belong to the distant future. Uh, So we need to keep that in mind as well. Is this something that's going to happen soon or is it going to come later on? And so chapters 1 to 2 verse 5 really a wonderful introduction to the whole prophecy of Isaiah. It's, it's as though he's getting the whole message of the book in in just a very few words. The rest of the book will expand on that and enlarge our understanding of it. But uh, chapter 1 verse 2 shows us that God is like a father to the nation of Israel, but Israel behaves to him as re- rebellious children. The, the current situation is, is one of children who should know better rebelling against the God that's given them everything. But the book moves towards a future in chapter 2 where it's a loving family, a happy family, reconciled and at peace with each other and with God. And so there's an image of how it is and how it should be. 
Well, how it is, is described in fairly graphic terms because uh, the Assyrians, the dominant world power, have come in and they've laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel and they are even now threatening Jerusalem. And they've been through much of the territory of Judah and they've knocked cities over and taken people captive. Uh, the people of Jerusalem uh, are at real risk from this uh, warlike nation on their doorstep. And so Isaiah says to them, this is how it is, the current situation. Your country lies desolate, cities have been burned. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. In other words, uh, exposed and, uh, and very much at risk. Now we see images like this uh, coming in from the Ukraine where cities are being destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem was still intact, but, um, but the cities around about it were not. They were un under a threat of attack. But Isaiah looks ahead to a day when the city will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, by repentance and by righteousness. So that's how it should be, a nation at peace with itself, at peace with its neighbours and at peace with God through the proper worship that God has prescribed. So what's all this Jerusalem and Zion talk? We've spoken of it before, but we need to remind ourselves just to orient ourselves for the rest of the book. Uh, Jerusalem and Zion are almost interchangeable words. They both describe uh, the same reality, a city uh, built on a mountain. Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. But when the language of Jerusalem is used, it's used in a political sense because uh, this was the place on the map that David chose to be his capital city. So it was a political centre. But Zion is the, the phrase or the, the name that's used when we're trying to think religiously because God had said, I will make my name to dwell there. And God's name dwells in the temple which Solomon built, Solomon David's son. And so when we think of Jerusalem, we're thinking of a political entity. When we think Zion, we're thinking of a religious entity where God makes his, his dwelling on this mountain. Now that reminds us of Exodus 29, and this is really one of the great themes of the whole Bible. God promised Israel, as he's rescued them from Egypt, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. So God had promised to live among his people. He did it first of all in the tabernacle, in a tent, but then he made a permanent residence in the temple. The, the people of Judah made the mistake of thinking, while well, the temple's there, we'll, we're safe, we can live anyhow we like. Big mistake, because Yahweh had said, if you contravene my law, you'll be taken captive again. And so Isaiah's big question then becomes, how will this Zion, the Zion of rebellious children, be transformed into that Zion, the Zion of international peace? How will that be? And the rest of the book answers that question. But we get a partial answer in chapter 6, which is the story of Isaiah's commissioning. Uh, and so read chapter 6 with me. We find there, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah is dead, but Israel's true king lives forever. Uh, Verses 2 to 4 give us an awe-inspiring vision of the Holy One of Israel. That's the title that's given to God over and over in the book of Isaiah, more than any other book of the Old Testament. And and so uh, the seraphim rejoice in, in God's holiness. They, they celebrate it, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew writing, uh, if you wanted to make a plural, you said the same thing twice. Uh, Aboriginal languages do that as well, which is why we have places like Wagga Wagga and Bore Bore and uh, Bullen Bullen. Uh, it just means lots of whatever a bullen is, a lyre bird. Um, well, the Hebrews used to say the, say the thing again, and, and that means lots of it. But to say holy, holy, holy is to say that God is totally holy. Not just mightily holy, but just completely holy. Holy through and through. The essence of God is that he's holy. He's separate. He's other. He's perfect. And a holy God cannot live with an unholy people. So if the goal of the Bible is to be achieved, I will be their God, they will be my people, I will make my dwelling among them, then people need to be made holy, fit for God's presence. And when Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, he knows he's unholy, he knows he's unfit, and so he says, woe is me. He says, I'm undone, I'm as good as dead. But his reaction mirrors Judah's condition. Judah is unworthy of God living among them. They think it's great having the temple there, but they forget that God can only live with them when he makes them holy, and they're doing all that they can to ensure that that doesn't happen. But the God who strikes awe, who leads Isaiah to regard himself as being as good as dead, makes a way for people to live with him. And so that way is the process of atonement. And so the seraph comes to Uh, Isaiah with a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. What's being done here is atonement. God is making a way. Now the coal came from the altar which was kept alight permanently. We can read about that in Leviticus 6. But the altar was where animal sacrifices were made and animal sacrifices represented the giving of a life. So an animal who had done nothing wrong presumably paid with its life for the sin of the people that brought the sacrifice. And so what's written about very briefly here is this idea of sacrifice being applied to a person to put them right with God, to make them holy. And notice that the coal is taken from the altar and touched on Isaiah's lips. What God's doing is is paying the price that his justice requires. God's justice requires that sin be paid for. Humans can't pay for it, but God, because he's kind and merciful, he pays the price. And so Isaiah is cleansed. And notice that it's his lips that are cleansed because they're unclean. The lips express what's in the heart. But Isaiah was a man who had been commissioned to become a prophet. He had to go with his lips to speak to people. And so it was important that his lips be cleansed. And so we see atonement where God brings sinful people 
into his presence, makes them fit for his presence through sacrifice. And that's the answer to how can that Zion become that Zion. But verses 8 to 13 of this chapter tell us that essentially Isaiah's career of 59 years is going to be one where people don't listen. They're going to harden their hearts against God's message, except for a remnant. There will be some that listen and and obey and are made righteous. So back to the idea of threat and judgment. Another of the big threats that faced Judah was that they kept on wanting to make military alliances with other nations. Now, God had told them, don't even bother. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, as he describes going into the land to take it uh, for Israel to live in, uh, God says, I'll fight for you. You don't have to do it at all. I'll fight for you. But they forgot that. And this is one of the ongoing temptations for Christians everywhere to think that we will use the world's means to get along. We will use the techniques and the the tricks that the world uses in business, say, to run the affairs of the church, or we'll settle matters that need to be settled with other people using the tactics that we see on TV soap operas or something like it. But in fact, God wants us to operate according to his laws, his principles, his ways. And so to, to look to the world for the solutions to our problem is just another form of idolatry, and it's one that left Judah subject to judgment. When uh, King Hezekiah was faced with the the prospect of forming a foreign military alliance, Assyria was coming right to the gates of Jerusalem and one of the Assyrian ambassadors came and said, on what do you rest this trust of yours? And that's a question which really is at the heart of the whole of the first 39 chapters. What is Judah trusting in? Are they trusting in themselves or are they trusting in God? Because people who trust in themselves will be judged People who trust in God will be saved. We find three case studies from chapter 7 through to the end of this first first section. So at that time, the dominant world power was no longer Egypt. It was, in fact, Assyria. And so Assyria, with cities like Nineveh and Ashes, Nineveh was the most prominent Assyrian city at the time, was the dominant power. It had an influence right throughout that shaded area. The four kings of Judah, as we've seen, uh, all reigned under the threat of a Syrian invasion. But the first case study is of Ahaz. Uh, we read about it in Isaiah 7 to 8 and also in 2 Kings chapter 6. Ahaz was faced with uh, the threat of an invasion from a coalition of Syrian forces with the northern kingdom of Israel. And they threatened him. What did he do? Well, Isaiah tried to talk him into relying on God, but instead... He went to Assyria for assistance. And we read in Second Kings 6 that Assyria then, well, not only did it um, uh, launch an invasion on, on Israel, the northern kingdom of Samaria, uh, but they came right to the gates of Jerusalem as well. Isaiah said to, Hez- to Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, you're putting yourself at risk of judgment. Well, in 722 BC, Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom. As I say, they came very close to Jerusalem as well and knocked over many cities in the uh, the region of Judah. That was a failure. Case study two is a success, and it's King Hezekiah, the last of the four kings under which Isaiah prophesied, uh, or to who Isaiah prophesied. 
in the 14th, we read in chapter 36, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them, all but Jerusalem. So that's a significant threat. But under Isaiah's prompting and, and with his prophetic um, insight and word to Hezekiah, Hezekiah sought the Lord in prayer. And he prayed at one of the Bible's great prayers in chapter 37, and just a small part of it in verse 17 to 20, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Sennacherib has mocked the living God. And so in verse 20, So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah prays, what will Yahweh do? Well, in chapter 37 we read, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, for I will defend the city to save it. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. They'd come right to the gates of Jerusalem, but they were repelled not by a Judean army, but by the angel of the Lord, because Yahweh will fight for his people when they seek him in faith. So that's a successful case study. But what about case study three? And it's quite puzzling this, because again, it concerns King Hezekiah. And so we read in chapter 39 that there was another episode later in Hezekiah's life And we read there, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now, why didn't Hezekiah pray? Perhaps he was just giddy with excitement about becoming well again after being so dangerously sick and close to death. But he did a foolish thing. He let the Babylonian ambassadors come in and have a look at everything he owned. And and Isaiah said, as a result, your kingdom will be taken and the Babylonians will come. So this is a bridge between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. Uh, It's a bridge from the world dominated by Assyria to the world shaped by Babylon from chapters 40 onwards. And it was to Babylon that Judah was eventually taken captive in 586 BC, years after Hezekiah had made this fateful error. So why did he pray and seek God the first time, act in faith and be blessed for it? Why didn't he the second time? We're not sure. But again, it shows us that temptation to do business with the world according to the world's principles rather than according to the principles of God. And so Zion is a paradox. We could ask the question, why to this point hasn't Jerusalem fallen as Samaria had? Why was the southern kingdom of Judah still intact when the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity? Judah's sins were just as bad as, as, as Israel's. So Yahweh must have other plans. Uh, The whole book of Isaiah oscillates between the present and the distant future, the hope that will come uh, when Yahweh achieves those plans. So Zion gives us a picture of how things ought to be, and it's the goal that Yahweh will achieve in the latter days, the goal that we're still waiting for, the goal that will be achieved uh, as God works out his purposes through the Lord Jesus. 
But how will he work out those purposes? We find already that painful refinement is going to be required. Uh, Just like happened to Isaiah, it won't necessarily involve a coal from the altar being put on your lips, but there will be painful refinement as people are made fit for the Holy One of Israel's presence. But that activity will take place through, we read, Emmanuel, God with us in chapter 7, a king in David's line in chapter 9 and chapter 11. And we realise that the book of Isaiah, like all of the Old Testament, finds its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. Uh, These prophecies point ahead to one that God will send to further the work of making a people fit for his presence. 1 Peter 3 takes up words from later in Isaiah when he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The plan of God creating a Zion where he and his people would live in harmony in a world at peace can only be really fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah is a big signpost pointing along that way. So Judah's essential problem was that they'd forsaken Yahweh, they'd rejected his law, and by rejecting his word, they'd rejected Yahweh himself. And that continues to be a trap for people that call themselves those who belong to God even now. It's ever so easy for us to look at life and think we'll do it our way. We'll do it according to the wisdom of the world. But to paraphrase Isaiah and apply it to our own situation, I want to urge us as a Mafra community church, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Don't look to the world for solutions. Politics can't help you. It, it, it'll do some good, but, but it'll do a lot of bad as well. But politics isn't going to bring that reign of peace to the world. Uh, the only way that will come is through faithfulness, through repentance, through turning to God. But in the meantime, we face the challenge each day of will we orient ourselves God's way? How well do you know God's word? To what extent is it shaping the way that you live? Uh, That's the challenge that these first 39 chapters of Isaiah represent for us. Will we be like Judah, estranged from God because we forsake his word? Or will we embrace his word and find ourselves amongst the company of the blessed, those who have a glorious future because we come by faith to God, fully relying on the salvation that he's given us in the Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it contains. Help us to be diligent about reading it. Help us to come to it with the eye of faith. Uh, We pray that you would help us to work hard at understanding even these complex and difficult bits so that we'll understand Jesus better and understand our place in your world better. So we pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals to walk in the light of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll see you next time.